Um, welcome. So good to see you here all tonight. Uh, Pastor Siv sends his greetings. He's busy honoring his father back home as his dad is retiring, and there's all kinds of celebrations and honoring series around that, so we said he could go. And then Pastor Jesse is just plain having fun on the beaches of Mozambique tonight, so that's why she's not here. So you can either bless her or shout at her when she comes back <laughs> next week. But we are here, and who's glad they came tonight? Amen. So um, God is not done yet. Last week, we started our Matthew series, and Pastor Jess really kicked us off in a powerful manner, talking about knowing the King. And the book of Matthew was written to a predominantly Jewish Hebrew audience to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the promised King of Israel um, from all the prophecies before. Tonight, we're going to talk about the victory of the king. And you're going to do reading in your Bible. So open up your apps, your Bible to the book of Matthew, and we're going to bounce around a little bit in Matthew. Uh, we're going to start in Matthew 28, reading from verse 1. Matthew 28, reading from verse 1. And it says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so when we talk about victory in our modern world, we actually equate it to winning, don't we? And we equate winning to success. And when we say the word success today, it is loaded with all kinds of meanings, isn't it? What does it generally mean? It means we are wealthy. It means we're at the top of our game. It means everybody knows us, we're famous. It means that we are feared and we are envied. People want to be like us. And so the first point I want to make about the victory of Jesus tonight is that Jesus' concept of victory is not the same as ours. It's not the same as the world's victory. So as I said, Jesus' whole gospel was to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the victorious king who was going to come and save them once and all from their enemies. Now think about the time in history that Jesus came. We're going to celebrate Christmas soon, remembering his birth. And Jesus was born in the midst of the Roman conquest of Judea. Jesus was born to a besieged and enslaved people. Foreigners, enemies, pagans, ungodly, the uncircumcised heathen were ruling them, 
when Jesus was born. And throughout his lifetime, that was the context of Israel. If you grow up besieged, you grow up traumatized. You grow up not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. You grow up at the mercy of masters who hate you and do not want you to prosper and succeed. And, and, and in the context of Jesus' time, the promised Messiah was gaining momentum. The idea that Messiah was going to come. Surely this is the worst point we've ever been at. Surely now he will come. And because people were thinking and talking like that, what they wanted Messiah to do, really all they wanted Messiah to do, was come and kill the Romans was come and chase them into the sea and wipe them off the face of the earth. Why? Because they are our evil, evil masters, and we hate them. But can you see, in the passage we've just read, is the greatest victory story ever. And yes, there is an aspect of winning, isn't there, in that passage? Yes, Jesus wins. But before the winning, we have submission. Before the winning, we have sacrifice. Before the winning, we have an unrighteous judgment and a sentence placed on him that he did not deserve. Before the winning, we have him dying on a cross. And it didn't end there because do you know that Jesus actually went to hell so you and I never ever would have to. And then he took the keys away from Satan and he said, you are not ruler of anything anymore. And he rose from the dead. And so, yes, there's an aspect of winning in that story, but most of that story just looks like failure and death and destruction, doesn't it? And that's what it looked like to the very people who were believing for Messiah. Some of them who hoped in him, when they saw that happen, it says his disciples ran away. They didn't understand that the greatest victory was about to manifest in front of them. And again, the point is, is that Jesus' concept of victory is totally different from ours. Who wants victory? Okay, who wants sacrifice and death on a cross? <laughs> One or two of you, God bless you. So let's look a little bit at how different Jesus' concept of victory is to ours. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew 19, verse 16. We're going to start reading from verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, in some um, translations it says, if you would be perfect, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, in some of the translations, this young man is called the rich young ruler. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
He's from Josie. <laughs> Rich, young ruler. Now, let's just think about those three descriptions for a start. Isn't that everything the world wants? Rich, young, hot, happening, handsome ruler, influencing, holding power. It's exactly what the world wants. Everybody in the world is striving for these things. But the thing that gave him authority was the thing that was his downfall. It's so interesting because in this culture, um, age was revered. Elders were revered. But he has a rich, young ruler. I think what gave him his authority to rule was his money. Because money speaks, doesn't it? And the Bible tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. So yes, he might have had some natural leadership talent, uh, talent, but he was young. In this culture, he should not yet have been a ruler. Why does he carry such influence? Because money talks. And because money talks and money gave him influence, it was an idol in his life. The very thing that gave him authority to rule and be recognized was actually his undoing. Do you see that his very success was actually his bondage? That his very success was the thing he needed victory over? You know, he comes to Jesus, and I think there was, there was something genuine there. What do I do to get eternal life? He, co he caught something of what Jesus was saying. But then him... Then he made the mistake of thinking, so everything I have should be good enough. And he says, he calls Jesus good, and I love how Jesus calls him out on that. He says, why are you talking to me about what's good? There is only one good, and that is God. What's he saying to that young man? Do you know that I'm actually God? Because you're calling me good, but you don't yet realize who I actually am. See, that young man thought that his self-righteous acts of strict obedience made him good. And when he looked at Jesus, he was just judging Jesus on his level of goodness because he didn't understand that Jesus was actually the Son of God. And then Jesus tells him, only God is good. What is Jesus saying to him? Well, only God is good, and only God can make you good. There's nothing else, not your deeds, not your wealth. Nothing in you can make you good. I love how he proudly tells Jesus, yes, I've kept all those commands. Now, when I was reading this story again this time, I realized Jesus left out some commands. He doesn't list all ten of them, does he? What commands does he leave out? Well, the first three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven image for yourself. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. See, because Jesus could see the idol in that young man's heart. So he doesn't mention that commandment, because the young man would be lying if he said, I've kept them all. Because in that moment, Jesus was going to expose to him the idol of his heart. The, the other one Jesus leaves out is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or goods. Because who knows, if you've got an idol of money in your life, you are coveting. And so Jesus just leaves the other commandments. And there's really a good space where this young man had not broken those commandments. That he hadn't outright lied, outright committed adultery, whatever. 
But I think Jesus left those out because he wanted the, this young man to see what his real situation was. He, Jesus knows what's going on in his heart, and he wants to help him with that. And then he asks, I don't think he even understood how ungenuine he was in that moment. So what do I still lack? <laughs> See, he's trying to be really good. <laughs> and then Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect. And again, only God is perfect, isn't he? And only when we hide ourselves in him, in his mercy, in his grace, only when we hide ourselves in the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross can God make us perfect. We have no perfection of our own. And I believe that the point of Christianity isn't striving for perfection because if we could be perfect, what would Jesus need to do? The point of Christianity is faith in relationship to God, understanding that his sacrifice washes us clean and cleanses us. Understanding that his victory is won for us. That is the point of Christianity. And Jesus was trying to teach this young man, and he's trying to teach you and I the same thing tonight. That true victory requires sacrifice, it requires submission, and it requires the suffering of giving away our shallow, ungodly supports and securities. True victory means we put away false identity and we stand in the identity God has won for us. And, it, and that is a kind of suffering, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's no suffering at all. <laughs> but in our flesh, in the moment, it feels like we're dying because actually we are. And we have to. We should all be dead people raised to life by Jesus. True victory requires a deep trust and a deep faith that even when the battle is fierce and we cannot fathom a victory, God will come through for us in a way that will set us free forever. And that is what Israel did not understand. The victory of God was walking in their midst, that in their besieged state, they could be freer than any other people on the whole planet ever would be. Because that is the victory of God. The second thing about victory is that it's all about the heart. Jesus was going after the heart of that rich young ruler. Matthew 8 verse 23 Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. I love how calm the Bible is. Save us, Lord. We are no, they were freaking out. To perish means we are going down. <laughs> and he said to them, why are you afraid? Now you are in a storm where the boat is sinking, and somebody who's been sleeping says, why are you afraid? <laughs> what do you say to them? Look. <laughs> but what did he say? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And so do you see that Jesus had authority over the natural realm? Jesus had authority over the spiritual realm. There's a good chance that if you look at the full context of the story, that Jesus was about to go and destroy a principality over the region, and it did not want him there. But more importantly, Jesus had authority over his own soul. When that natural demonic storm hits that boat, where is Jesus? He is sleeping. Why? Because he knows who he is, and he knows what he carries. And you see, you and I, this is the wonder of Jesus on that cross. Jesus, who had been given all authority, gave it to us. He delegated his authority to us. And Jesus demonstrates what it means to be a man, a human being. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And so he had to choose to submit to his Father, like we have to choose to submit to God and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus stood on truth, like we have to stand on truth. And he is sleeping in that boat because he knows who he is. And all he had to do in that moment was stand up and declare to God, to man, to nature, to the universe, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. You stop it right now. And what came against him stopped like that. And that's why he said to them, you have little faith. He's not being mean and nasty. <laughs> He's going, look and see what's actually happening. You are children of God. You have the same authority I do because I live in you and I have given it to you. And so he had authority over his own soul over his own heart and when we carry authority over our own soul and our own heart we can live from victory in every single circumstance of our lives why let's look at matthew chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 matthew chapter 4 then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> How understated is the Bible? After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was starving. <laughs> he was about to die. <laughs> now, this chapter starts immediately after Jesus is baptized. Okay? And... What is so beautiful, as I said to you, Jesus is the perfect example of a human being, of what it looks like when a human being submits themselves fully to God. Did Jesus need to be baptized? There was no sin in him. But he had to identify with us. He had to do what we have to do so that he could open the way for us to be truly, truly free. And so he was baptized as a demonstration of what we have to do. Immediately after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit calls him into the wilderness, into the desert. And for 40 days, he fasts and prays and does not eat anything. And just like the devil, when we are at our weakest, when he was at his weakest, the devil rocks up to tempt him. Because Jesus has to demonstrate to us how we as human beings can have victory. When we are at our weakest, 
And when the enemy of our souls comes to destroy us, what do we do? And the issue is identity. It's exactly what happened in that storm. Jesus did not fear that storm because he knew who he was and what he carried. And so Jesus has to identify with us in in severe temptation and give us the model of how we stand under it. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil in the Garden of Eden, and they failed. Israel walked in the desert for 40 years, and they failed. Where Adam and Eve failed, and where Israel Israel failed, Jesus was victorious. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then he gives us this beautiful example, and he demonstrates this to us. Before we get there, Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what that is saying is that whatever you are being tempted with in your life, whatever you have ever been tempted with, it means Jesus was tempted and guess what? One victory. Because if there was one sin he wasn't tempted with, we would have no freedom. Do you get that? And so he has won victory. And so how did he do it? Looking a bit further down in Matthew 4, in verse 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is Satan saying to him? If you are the son of God, what is he doing? Attacking his identity. That's exactly what he does to us. Oh, you say you're a Christian, but you thought that last night. Oh, you say you're a Christian, but you did this. If you are the son of God, how dare he? And then what does Jesus say? It is written. See, Jesus knows the victory is won. Now think about that situation that Jesus is in. 40 days and 40 nights without bread or water. And Satan promises him, just turn these stones into bread. Exactly what he needs. It's actually going to be good for him to eat in that moment. But the issue is is that Satan is trying to transact. You give up your identity, you can have what you want then I rule. And so what Jesus is showing us right here is that when we are in desperate places, we do not lose ourselves. That when it doesn't look like victory, who knows that that place did not look like victory? It doesn't matter because we have the victory. And so in your, in your relationships, in your temptation, in the circumstance and situation of your life right now, your responsibility is to pull the victory in there because you have it. But what did Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He stands on the authority and the truth of God's word. Do we know scripture? Do we know that the victory is ours? Can we find that scripture for this situation, even if it is just God is a present help in time of trouble? But can we stand on it? See, this is why we read our Bibles. This is why we study the Word of God. This is why we have relationship with Jesus, because life does not wait. It waits for no man. 
As I said in a sermon recently, I have realized that life splatters across your windscreen in big, messy chunks. And while you're getting one bit off with water, it splats across again. It does not arrive in neat little packages that we deal with one at a time. And so Jesus was not seeing victory, but he chose to stand in it. And I'm just looking at the first temptation, but there are two more after this. And only after the temptation do the angels come to minister to him. And here's the thing, whether it's manifesting or not, I do not give up. I stand on the promise of God. I stand in the victory I have. And the enemy has to flee. And it might take a little while for us to see it happen. But we believe with all our hearts. And we do not blame God. We worship and we praise Him. This year, one of the revelations I'm taking out of 2018 came to me through dealing with some very desperate people. And as I was trying to help and we were trying to figure out, the Lord started showing me desperation is an enemy of faith. The word in English, to be desperate, is not a good word. You know, we sing it in worship songs. But what it literally means is, you have no help. Nothing is coming to save you. You are in an ocean sinking and there are no ships. You have fallen off a cliff and you are not going to catch anything. That is desperate. And when we are desperate, when we choose desperation over faith, we start making plans. Drowning people in the sea, when they get desperate, they drown faster. I don't know what happens when you're falling off the cliff. I'm not sure that's a good... You just hit the bottom. <laughs> I don't know if it happens faster or not, but you know it's going to happen. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is, is that desperation and faith cannot exist in the same place. Let me explain, because the lie of desperation is no ship is coming. No rope can you grab. When the truth of God is, I'm here with you. That ship is coming. Stop being desperate. Lift up your eyes to the hills. See where your hope is coming. You keep kicking. You keep kicking. What, what, did, what did that movie say? Keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. You don't give up. Why? Because God is good. And your plan might not save you, but God's absolutely will. And this is what victory looks like. Are you getting that? Can you declare the truth of God into that situation that needs victory tonight? Can you declare the truth of God into that temptation, into that relationship? Can you do that? That's the victory. And we have to learn how to stand in the authority that Jesus won for us. He gave it to you freely. You have the victory. You know, we used to sing this old song in the, in the, in back in the day, the battle is the Lord's, but the victory is mine. And that is absolutely true. You have the victory. Can you access it and pull it in to the space you're standing in right now? And what I've had to learn in my life is that I fight from victory. Sometimes I have to fight. Sometimes I have to contend. Sometimes the enemy is relentless, but I have already won the victory. Every time I forget that, it goes bad. <laughs> but when I remember that, 
I watch things change. And you know, often the victory is kind of boring. It's not a big bang. It's just waking up one day and realizing, wait, hold on. I'm not stressed anymore. Wait, wait, hold on. I know exactly what to say to that person who hurt me. Wait, hold on. I forgave you last night. Somehow I just did that. Wow. Just live from victory. Live from victory. And so, what I want you to remember about victory tonight as we start wrapping up is victory doesn't look like what we expect it to. There's a cost involved. Jesus paid it, and then we've got a little bit of responsibility. It's all about your heart. Do you have victory over your own soul? Can you sleep in a storm because you know who you are and you know that that thing can't stand against your authority in Jesus Christ? And will you stand in your identity and on your truth and pull whatever victory you need into that situation and not give in to desperation? Why don't you just take a moment, and I really want you to think, Jesus, would you just come and show us our own hearts tonight? Just think for a moment, where are you acting desperately? Where have you been so desperate that faith has gone out the door? Just for a moment, think about that. If you find that space, just put your hand up for me. So there's some of you feeling that. So what I want you to do now is you're going to just talk to Jesus. He's won the victory. It's yours. Why don't you just tell him, Lord, I realize I've been desperate. Just in your own words, just tell him, oh gosh, Jesus, I got so desperate. I started making plans. And then just in your heart, in some symbolic way, just put down that desperation. Put it away from yourself. And then say to him, Jesus, tonight I'm going to stand in faith. And Father God, I pray for these people with their hands raised, that Holy Spirit, you would come and give them the faith they need to move out of desperation, to access you, Lord God, to have the courage to wait and to stand in that awkward place until you move, until you speak, until you lead them and guide them. And just entrust that thing to him. Tell him that you believe he's going to come through. Tell him you're not going to be desperate anymore. You're going to have faith.